live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show this evening. Thank you for joining me tonight on this beautiful Saturday night in Toronto. Six degrees out there. Can you believe it? Anyway, a lovely night to be down at City Hall. Lots of fun things to do in Toronto. All kinds of cool things going on in the distillery district and out by uh, the Leaside area and down by um, the uh, Leslieville area. There's just so much to do in Toronto. There's a lot of people alive right now out there, excited, having a good time. And we're having a celebration here tonight as well. So hang in and we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate that. There we go. Okay, well, a little bit of a hiccup, but that's on me. I should have uh, called for it sooner. You know, I'm just learning this stuff as we go. It takes a bunch of years, I guess, to figure it all out. But listen, we're celebrating tonight because uh, I'm hopeful that all of you that are out there that uh, have made this show so successful uh, because our success is predicated on your audience and uh, your participation and uh, enjoying us and listening to us and, you know, tuning in and such. And because of the great uh, support we've got, we're um, being bumped to a national show starting next Saturday night called at your best with Yona Bud. That's me. And, um, it starts a little later. So I'm really hoping that you're all going to be able to do what I'm going to do. We're going to have a nap on Saturday afternoon. And the show starts live here in Toronto at 11 o'clock. So from 11 till 1, I'll be live talking about learning how to be at your best, teaching people how to be the better parts of themselves, getting uh, getting uh, some of the skills necessary to become a champion. So we're going to morph out of some of the mental health and addiction stuff into uh, people uh, learning how to be better, whatever being better means for you. And, and let me tell you where this comes from. So um, lately, over the last, uh, I'd say the last uh, number of years, I've really been transitioning from um, the therapy work that I do. So if you don't know who I am, you're listening for the first time. Let's go backwards. My name is Yona Bud, and I'm the, uh, the host here tonight. I'm also the clinical therapist, uh, clinical director and therapist um, at the farm in Stouffville, which is a residential facility, as well as recoverinhome.com, which is a uh, virtual recover at home program. Uh, so I'm the clinical director and co-founder of both of those. I've been a therapist for a lot of, a lot of years, over four decades. Uh, dealing with people uh, with issues with crisis and uh, mental health and addiction disease and so on. So I've been doing that forever, long, long time, about 3,900 patients and their families over my career. And I guess a couple of years ago, uh, you know, I was doing some coaching as well for some corporations and some executives and sales teams and uh, over, you know, for also the last uh, you know, couple of decades off and on here. And um, anyway, morphing more into... Um, doing that kind of work, doing more coaching, more leadership work, more champion building, uh, working with some athletes, working with some uh, performers, working with some corporations, some executives, uh, some excellent sales teams, um, and really having a good time doing it. So the new show, At Your Best with Yona Bud, um, is a national show across the global news network, global radio network, and uh, will be available here in Toronto at 640, where you're tuned in right now, uh, on a regular basis. But but it'll be 11 o'clock instead of 9 o'clock. And it gives me a chance to do more of what 
I'm really morphing into as I get, you know, further on in my years of doing this kind of work, working with people that um, are interested in just being better. What does that really mean to be better? So, um, you know, you fall down, you get up, that makes you better. Learning how to survive situations, setbacks, uh, how to pick targets for yourself, how young people can, uh, you know, pick um, programs and ideas and game plans that will lead to the, the success that they're looking for later in life. Helping adults deal with how to be more successful in their life and not necessarily making more money or buying a bigger house or another car or a cottage or any of that stuff, especially today when it's just difficult enough to put salad on the table. Holy smokes, can you believe how hard it is just to put salad on the table? Who would have thunk it? Stuff I never liked to eat as a kid, I can't get enough of today and now it's a fortune. It's almost uh, more than uh, the cost of cannabis apparently on a per gram basis, buying just salad. So being able to get past, you know, some of the things in our life that make, you know, that we could, that will help us be better, whatever better means for you, but not necessarily just, you know, in terms of material results. I really want to focus more on the, the, the emotional, psychological, and physical results in terms of, you know, how you feel. And how you you deal with yourself at night when you're in bed and you're alone and you're trying to you know reconcile how your day went and uh, could you have done this better could you have done that better and why did I do this and why did I do that that kind of stuff. So we're glad to be here with you tonight. I love being here. You're the best audience ever, and I'm hoping that you're going to be part of this new national program and uh, be my uh, big support, my Toronto support team. So if you want to give us a, 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 a congratulations or a shout-out, say hi throughout the evening, let us know that you're thinking about us, and uh, you'll be there with us next week when we launch on December the 3rd at uh, 11 o'clock at night. So, there, you know, just since we're talking about it, there's definitely a transition uh, certainly for me, right, to go from a show that starts at 9 and is finished at 11. Now we're going to go from a show that starts at 11 and finishes at 1. So there's a whole transition. Right? There's a learning curve. And maybe it's a lesson to all of you out there that are, you know, working shift work perhaps or uh, have, you know, situations in your life where you, you know, you're, you're up all night with a, a newborn baby or caring for an elderly uh, family member or someone in your life. But, you know, if, if learning to adjust to your work schedule um, is um, something that perhaps you don't consider a big deal. I suggest it's a big deal. I suggest ad adjusting your sleep, your eating patterns, uh, you know, go just going to the bathroom, you know, just uh, changing from, you know, going to the bathroom in the morning to get ready for an 8 o'clock shift is different than, you know, getting up in the late in the afternoon getting ready for an evening shift, for example, right? Um, it impacts your whole system, your digestive system, your, your, your sleep patterns, your ability to dream or not dream, your ability to, you know, deal with little bits of anxiety, and struggles that you may have throughout the day. So like I'm doing and like I've done, um, get yourself ready, right? Just get yourself ready for the things in your life that are coming up so that they're not a surprise, you're not caught off guard, and you're somehow in some level of training. And I think the training part is what's critical. So, and uh, you can text or call. Let us uh, wish us luck for uh, for the show coming up. And we hope to have you with us. We'll get to stretch this across Canada and bring you shows from different provinces and uh, profile guests from different provinces. And uh, basically, hope that everyone leaves every show with some new skills, some new strategies and perhaps a better understanding how you can actually be at your best. We're also going to profile people that aren't doing their best, right? So there'll be some stuff around people showing and representing them at their, their themselves at their best. 
And of course, we'll also be looking at people maybe not doing things in their best interest or at actually acting their best, not being their best on that particular day. So please join us. I'm looking forward to having you at your best with Yona Bud next week, December the 3rd at 11 p.m. on 640 Toronto here on the Global Radio Network. So when we come back here, we're going to talk about mental health. We're going to stick with this for, sh- for the show tonight. Uh, much worse in rural Ontario since COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, we got some research and uh, an expert that's going to join us to talk about that. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Hey, kiddo. I thought you were shoveling. The Rogers Wrapped in Red event. Streaming a movie? Out here? The Rogers Wrapped in Red event. Must be that extra data I got ya. The Rogers Wrapped in Red event. Wait, wait! I love this part of the movie. The Wrapped in Red event. Unwrap our biggest deals of the season with mobile plans from $60 a month. Great gifts for them, great deals for you. Visit rogers.com or a store near you for details. In life, there are those who do and those who do more. Just like F-150, doing more is part of our DNA. It's why F-Series has been Canada's best-selling line of trucks for 56 years. We don't raise the bar. We. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us this evening. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Jonah Bud, your host this evening. And uh, we know you have choices, and we're glad that you choose us. So um, where we are right now, we're talking about this mental health study uh, that talks about how mental health is much worse in rural Ontario since the pandemic, and there's research around this, actually. Um, findings from research into mental health in Huron, Huron and Perth counties, uh, pre- and post-COVID by Gateway Center for Excellence in Rural Health, um, give me some of the information. So before COVID, um, so, so people representing satisfactory mental health, uh, 6.3%, uh, 24.7% say excellent, 163 say average, and 50% say good. So that's prior to the pandemic. Since COVID, uh, 8.7% represent poor, uh, 13% excellent. The satisfactory category is 149 Average, 24.6, and um, the people who represent as good health are now 38%. So there's a decrease, 45% decrease in number of participants who self-assessed their mental health is excellent. 79% increase in number of patients, uh, participants, if you will, that... Um, that um, Participants who self-assess, uh, you know, assess their mental health is poor. So we're seeing increases everywhere here. Uh, the uh, 18 to 29 face the highest. 18 age, age 18 to 29 face the highest uh, amount of uh, mental health issues. Um, uh, face the highest amount of mental health decline. Excuse me, of all surveyed groups. I'm just trying to read the survey, the survey charts here. Uh, so you know, more people, uh, 100% increase in number of self-identifying male respondents between 18 to 29 who assess their mental health as poor. Um, the, the study just it just goes on to show that those in uh, rural uh, Ontario, and I would suggest probably rural Canada for that matter. Um, are, are really feeling the pinch in terms of uh, unsettled mental health more so uh, than others in Ontario, perhaps in Canada. Cassandra Bryant, she's our guest here this evening. She's a PhD student in the Rural Studies Program at the University of Guelph, which has excellent program, by the way, and was very involved in Be Well Work 
uh, Well Project, which is what we're talking about here, which is commissioned by Huron County's Gateway Center of Excellence in Rural, on, Rural Health. Study shows the toll uh, COVID-19 played on people's mental health, 3,600 uh, respondents, and roughly 20, 79% increase of those reporting poor mental health. It's also uh, in the works. There's another study we can touch on, touch on a little bit later. Uh, Cassandra, first of all, thank you so much for joining us this evening and hope that you're well. Thank you so much, Yona. It's a pleasure to be here this evening. Excellent. So let's start with this. How did the study come about and who paid for it? Yeah, great question. So this study came about uh, through the Gateway Center of Excellence in Rural Health, as you had mentioned earlier, and it was a project that uh, the organization applied for to the provincial government. Um, and so we were wanting to take a look at how rural communities and local businesses in Huron and Perth uh, counties were uniquely impacted by the pandemic. And we were taking a look at the mental health. We did take a touch a little bit on substance use, but not too much in the study. Um, it just didn't come through in the results. But the Be Well, Work Well study is really a community-based research project that really aims to strengthen Huron-Perth rural communities to ensure that local the voices of local employers and employees are heard and reflected in any solutions as we move forward, whether it's government level, whether it's in the workplace, in the healthcare sector, and even at the community levels. Well, you talk, that's, that's, it's a big, it's a big calling, I'll tell you, because if you're looking at solutions for the mess that we're currently in, um, there's a whole, there are a whole host of, of experts that I had the, you know, the, 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 the good fortune of being able to hang out with and talk to and, you know, do my work with. Uh, we're all scratching our heads on how, how the hell we're going to deal with this. And more in particular, you know, young people and, you know, how it's going to affect, uh, young people, um, and how that's going to, uh, play out over the next decade. What, what do you, so, so I'm, it's, first of all, it's amazing that you're involved in this stuff. And I'm, I'm so happy that you and your colleagues are actually doing this kind of work and, and taking the time and the effort. Um, what call, what qualifies in this study? Uh, there's always, you know, somebody says, you know, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm not doing so great. What, what qualifies as poor or excellent in your study? So the, the spectrum is, you know, is it a one or a five when I'm asking the question in this question, in this particular situation, poor or excellent? What qualifies as poor? And then what qualifies as excellent? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, one of the things that we did, Yona, in the study, uh, not necessarily in the first phase, which was that survey that we had conducted between November and February this past, uh, you know, November 2021 to February 2022, but more so in the interviews and focus groups that we did uh, from April to June. And we actually asked respondents to define what mental health meant to them because we say mental health all the time we talk about it all the time but really what what does it mean and so I'll share maybe uh, one of the definitions or what a lot of folks had said and really when we're looking at poor if someone's saying poor or excellent it's that ability to cope with uh, the day's um, uh, the day's challenges, if you will, it's interactions with people, it's it's being able to get up in the morning and get out, go to work, do your job well. Uh, so there was that piece about ability to cope and if you can cope, but also, you know, other folks that talked about it's the ability to flourish as well. So if you're flourishing, if you're thriving, then that is where maybe you are doing well. But if you are barely coping or barely keeping it together, you're doing poorly. 
Yeah, it's interesting. The bar is always different for others, right? So, you know, it, doing exceptionally well is, is excellent, I guess, in your case, and not doing so great is probably poor as it relates to this case. You know, in the world that I've been living in for a long time, Cassandra, poor means you want to kill yourself, and excellent means, you know, you're in a great shape today, you're going to work, you're eating properly, yes. you're not making bad choices. So, it, you know, but I don't think that's the bar. I think it's more it's more in line with where you're at. I think the, the crisis work I come from is entirely different than reality as it relates to, you know, general mental health. And I think people that are just not, I mean, I don't know what you think, but, you know, I'm sure people that you've studied and even colleagues and people you know from school, because you're obviously still on campus at some level, right? Um, yes. You know, people are just in a funk, right? They don't even know how to describe the funk. But um, is that kind of what poor feels like for a lot of the people you talk to? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, someone had described it, um, you know, managing through COVID, and this was a healthcare worker that you're just carrying on in the day. But if you were a cell phone, if you will, your battery was always running on low, so yeah. you're still working, but you're yeah. you're 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 barely working. So there was that. It was a good analogy there. Um, and I also want to just share too one of the things that we discussed when we were looking at um, how people were faring, you know, probably from the beginning of the pandemic to now, and we're looking at healthcare workers, but we're also looking at other sectors like manufacturing uh, and business and so forth, but uh, that people are running a marathon now. So at the very beginning, we were running a sprint. It was all hands on deck. People were just saying, what can we do? How can we do it? Just working, working. But now two and a half years later, we're running a marathon. And it's a marathon, uh, Yona, that no one received training for. And it's a marathon that still yet does not have a finish line. We're still running this marathon. So that's a long time for people to be um, running, if you will, or, or trying to work without having uh, the time to recuperate, the time to um, maybe go get that support, mental health support or mental wellness support that you may need. Uh, the time, no one is available, I should not available, but the time is not there to be able to, to um, recoup, I, I guess, if you will. So we, we keep going every day we wake up and we keep going, but we're not filling our cup, if you will. Yeah, we refer to that uh, in non-clinical terms as being stuck in a rut. Um, And, you know, if you don't get out of that rut, so, you know, certainly... Uh, anyone I talk to, whether I'm coaching them or counseling them, whatever, um, tell them the same thing. You got to carve out time uh, for your for your self care. And people don't understand what self care is. They think it means you got to go to the gym, you got to do this. Self care is just like you know. I'm sure you recognize it too, Cassandra. That it's just taking the time for you, whether it's just to breathe, right, catch your breath, um, you know, sit down, have a decent meal, go for a walk, play with your cat, play with your dog, you know, call someone you love, take a hot bath, and do nothing. Um, so in the, in the studies that you're doing, right, mm-hmm. um, are you, do you talk about alternatives to how people feel or is this just, are you just assessing, the, is it only a one-way communication? In other words, uh, is there something coming back to the participants in terms of things they could be doing based on what they're reporting? Yeah, it's a great question. We are asking what people are doing, you know, outside of maybe, as you said, self-care, go to the gym, do this, do that, and whether they are um, pausing and if they are trying to do that. And and 
there are a number of folks across the sectors who are trying different things uh, to be able to help themselves. There's three studies that um, have been happening, I guess, that are connected to Gateway and or the University of Guelph. And one of them is this one tonight, the Be Well, Work Well, which takes yeah. a look at the labor market in the two counties. And then there's yeah. the impact of the pandemic on rural healthcare workers and here on in Perth County, as well as uh, the rural response to COVID-19, the impact of mental health in general. And again, in those two counties, so we have these three research studies that are still active, if you will, uh, that we're very curious to see as when we kind of finish the reporting and, and submit the reports, you, one of them is going to the government, one of them is going to Gateway, the other one obviously is going to the University of Guelph and what we're going to be doing with that information there. Uh, when we take a look at, you know, solutions or if we're taking a look at what people can do, you know, there were a number of recommendations. We actually asked participants, what would you recommend to the government? What would you recommend to the workplace and leadership and management? And also, what do you recommend within your community about how we can recover and how we can can recoup not only as individuals but as a community well uh be interesting to see how what the results are going to be uh when people actually talk to their uh their uh, government officials and see where this, some of this goes um you're going to stick around hopefully and when we come back from break here uh we're going to talk some more about uh, the study and just you know people's mental health uh, in general because clearly you've got a good handle on it. I'm talking to Cassandra Bryant. She's a PhD student in rural studies program at the University of Guelph and very involved in the pro in the study Be Well, Work Well, and she's going to come back and join us right here after break. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Yona Bud. You are on the road to recovery, and I'm here joined by my guest, Cassandra Bryant. She's a PhD stu student in the Rural Studies program at University of Guelph and involved in the study that we're talking about here, Be Well, Work Well Project. We're talking about how rural communities are hardest hit since the pandemic in terms of mental health and so on. Uh, Cassandra, thanks for sticking around. Um, we know that mental health uh, of a lot of Canadians was disrupted during the pandemic. Why do you think it affected rural Ontarians, or I guess I would say probably rural Canadians, but in particular rural Ontarians so disproportionately? Sorry, Yona, I you you I cannot seem to hear you. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure why you can't hear me. But um, I anyway, can hear the question... you slightly. Sorry, sorry, Yona, you're 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 quiet. Okay. Well, um, maybe I can't. <laughs> I, I only got so go. much control from where I am. I'm going to scream and yell. Uh, my dog will go, my, go. my dog my dog will go nuts. But I'm going <laughs> to yell at you. I'm going to yell at you, Cassandra. Can you hear me? I can hear kidding. you. Thank you, Yona. Okay, just kidding. Um, why do you think uh, Ontarians, rural Ontarians, are so disproportionately affected uh, by this mental health uh, impact from COVID? Yes, it's a great question. When we're looking at resources, infrastructure, access, uh, if we're looking at distance, if you will, all of those play a factor into um, uh, for for rural Canadians and how they access support. There is increased isolation, if you will, just for the nature of living in rural, and the number of resources or services available is not maybe as much as you would find in maybe urban or peri-urban areas. So there are a number of factors at play 
there, um, as well as just uh, depending on the sector, if you will, if it's manufacturing or agriculture, uh, where you have a traditionally uh, male dominant sector where rural uh, mental health is not necessarily spoken about and it's kind of you know swept under the carpet. So there's some of those um, dynamics, if you will, in rural communities, maybe compared to urban counterparts. Gotcha. So uh, quickly, if you can, I mean, we're, we're going to try to get a bunch of stuff in in whatever time we've got. Um, but give me an idea, if you can, kind of a synopsis of the findings from this from these uh, the studies so far. I know you're That's not. I know there's more. There's more being done, but kind of where are you so far, so we can springboard from there. Perfect. Yeah. So some of the things that are happening in rural communities, if we're taking a look at mental health, we know that uh, it's, it feels that it's more acute and becoming more complex. There is that mental health stigma uh, that people talk about in general, but it is more prevalent in rural communities. I will say it's getting better, Yona. Because of the pandemic, there is more discussion about it, but that stigma still exists there. And more so in those maybe male dominated sectors that as I mentioned earlier, when we look at that stigma as well, it is also shifting from a public stigma to a more personal one. And what I mean by that is while it's becoming more acceptable to talk about mental health in general, um, the research participants or what we found from the findings is that there are a lot of people that are wrestling with it at a personal level, if you will, that stigma. And additionally, it's been interesting to kind of uh, finesse out when people are talking. People are really comfortable talking about maybe being anxious um, and their anxiety rather than maybe saying they're depressed or that they're concerned about their mental health. So, you know, there's all these nuances, if you will, there. When you're looking at support, it's funny because even talking to some of the, the participants, Getting support is seen as a weakness, not as a strength. And, uh, you know, they kind of joke to say, oh, people who live in urban areas, it's 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 actually more um, weird, if you will, if you don't have a therapist, whereas it would be the opposite in rural areas. So that's something that I think is some, that, that is kind of rural in that way. There's a heavy reliance on informal support to cope, you know, family, friends, your community. And additionally, one of the things that we found that is coming out of two of the studies is since COVID, the reliance on your colleagues, your work colleagues has increased dramatically. So this is informal support as opposed to maybe formal support going to the doctor or whatever it may be. Informal support, people are really relying on their colleagues. And it's really to be able to um, not burden family and friends with your uh, struggles, but and also yeah. be with a group of people who get it, who know what you're going through because they're going through it at the same time. And as I talked about before, you know, weather, location, internet access, transportation, finances, all this has an impact on trying to access those, any support services if you wanted to. One of the other things I wanted to share you on it is um, there's a distrust in seeking help locally. And this was a consistent finding. Basically, when we're looking at it, there's a distrust or fear uh, of a confidentiality breach uh, within the community if they go and see someone for their health uh, in that community. And there's really an acute discomfort or fear of crossing paths with those that are supporting your mental health. And that was something that was consistent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to. I was going to say your, your chances are you're running into. Your, I mean, even uh, I got to tell you, you know, I live in a in a kind of a suburban Jewish community, and uh, uh, you know, we my wife is very active. She's a fundraiser, and we're out doing things. And you know, it's it's interesting. When I, I know a lot of families, but 
they don't come up to me and go, hey, Yona, how you're doing? Because everyone knows if you're going over to say hello to Yona, someone in your family had to be messed up at some point, right? So, yeah. it, 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 and that, and I live in the city, you know, we live in Toronto, I live in Thornhill, um, in a rural community. You know, you're seeing them in church. You're seeing them at the at the coffee shop. You're, they could be your could be your the therapist could be your kid's hockey coach. You know, so a hundred percent, you're going to come mm-hmm. across the people that you know an hour or two ago you just bare bare your soul to, right? Um, so I, that that sort of makes right. a lot of sense to me. But um, are you also finding? I mean, I I know for a fact because I know what the numbers look like. Um, in in rural Ontario, in rural Canada, in, in rural Ontario in particular, because that's what we're talking about. A lot of self-medicating because these are, you know, these are people like you say that are working, working hard, tough people, you know, you know, working, many people who are, are working rural jobs, farm jobs and such up early in the morning, late at night. You know, if they, if they have a, a broken finger, they tape it up with, you know, duct tape and take a couple of Advil and go back to work. Um, mm-hmm. and when it comes to mental health, they treat it the same way. The problem is that the Advil now is a bottle of uh, something or, uh, too much weed or too many pills or who knows what, right? Uh, is that consistent with Absolutely. your finding? Yeah, absolutely. And when we did the survey back in November to February, we asked about, you know, what were some reasons why you maybe did not access formal support, go to your doctor, reach out in, in, in any of those services. And a lot of them had said, I prefer to handle it myself. <laughs> that was the answer. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there were some that admitted or also did the checkbox of saying, I'm just too embarrassed to, to, to even step out there. But really, it is a I can handle this on my own. We also have to think too, um, you know, it's changing a little bit, but initially and maybe that first year of the pandemic, people were waiting it out. They were waiting out the pandemic. And then once yeah, it's done, yeah. then I can get better. Um, but again, yeah. as we've talked about, it's we're not we're not out of the gates yet. There is no finish line yet. So we're still in it. And so these folks that are waiting and waiting and waiting, how how far or how long will they wait? Will they wait until they get into crisis mode, which, again, was another finding in terms of people, if they're going to access support or formal support, they're doing it when they're in crisis, not necessarily preventatively. Can I ask you a personal question, sort of? And if you don't want to answer, you can pass. Yeah? Yes. So <laughs> you didn't give me a yes. Okay, good. All right. Thumbs up. Uh, we're not on TV, so I can't see your thumb. Listen, <laughs> for after doing all this work, after doing all this study and based on the PhD that you're working on and so on, has it affected your own mental health, either positively or negatively in terms of stuff you've learned that are that's helping you or stuff maybe you weren't dealing with that now maybe you are? Like, how is it? I know when I do my work, it impacts me uh, psychologically and, and, and uh-huh. in terms of my own self-care. But um, has has this changed your life in any way, doing this study and, and, and sort of getting involved in people's lives at this level? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of reflection going on, Yona, in terms of just when I'm speaking to people. There's what they're sharing with me. I see in I see myself in what they're saying and in their experience. So you there, you know there's some shared experience there, and so it gives you that opportunity to recognize it and reflect on it. Yes, absolutely. My own mental health has been impacted uh, because of the pandemic. And um, I also know that I'm trying, as you talked about that self-care yeah. piece, you know, I am yeah. the physical piece, you know, the physical activity, just getting out for a walk, yeah. but also knowing yeah. that it's just getting back to the basics sometimes, reading a book, yeah. having a good yeah. meal. You know, uh, puzzles, I'm big on puzzles. Puzzles are a great uh, distraction or building models of some sort. Um, one quick, uh, one last quick question, because then we're going to, we've got to get out of here. But um, a lot of issues have flared up during the pandemic. I, I mean, I could keep you on forever, but uh, the, la- the the flared up during the pandemic to affect mental health. Um, 
did it did it rise in in did the rise in misogyny play a role like it, it seems to be very male dominant the, 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 a lot of the results and stuff um has it changed um has that impacted you think uh, the in people's mental health the, this whole increase in misogyny mm, that is a big question yona uh i you know my short answer is yes uh because there's additional when we talk about mental health we're talking about the fact that it is becoming more complex and it's not mm -hmm. just a matter of maybe stressors at the workplace or stressors at home but now we have these societal stressors at you know additional ones in in addition to other ones that we currently have been dealing with pre-covid and and, and exactly. describes here but yes i i yes i do agree that that is a challenge 100 percent I'm talking to uh, Cassandra, um, who is just an amazing guest and really appreciate her being here. Uh, Cassandra Bryan, she's a PhD study, student in Rural Studies program at the University of Guelph and is working on this uh, Study Be Well, Work Well project. Cassandra, we'll definitely uh, figure out a way to get you back on here at some point and uh, find out more about how the study is uh, carrying along. And def definitely appreciate your time and appreciate the work you're doing um, in this category because uh, people like you are out there checking this stuff out. We're going to be in a real mess and uh, we won't have any kind of sort of benchmark. And I think, you know, what, what you what's going to come from this is some kind of guide or, or a little bit of a, of a map, if you will, to help us navigate the next decade or two as we help people and young people especially sift through uh, this mental health challenge and come out the other side whole or, as you said, thriving, which is, I think, the key. Uh, thanks, Cassandra. I really appreciate you being here. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. We'll be right back. Now, Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You're on the road to recovery if you're just dialing in. My name is Yona Bud, and I am your host this evening. Thank you so much for joining us here at 640 Toronto and uh, in our last segment of the first hour. Boy, the time just flies when you have good guests and interesting information. Uh, so appreciate you being with us, and uh, you are the best audience ever. You can text or call for two reasons. Congratulate us on our new national show, which rolls out next week, and you'll be able to listen to it from 11 till 1 here on 640. Um, and in the evening, Saturday night. Um, and I'd also like you to weigh in on the fact that what do you think about the person who sells fentanyl to someone and then they die or fentanyl laced drug or, or cut drug, uh, street drug, and then they end up dying? Should they be held responsible? Is that murder or manslaughter at the very least? Is it uh, something that uh, you should uh, do uh, time for as it relates to uh, manslaughter or murder? Or is it simply just a trafficking thing and they should let it go? Well, there's a man convicted of such a thing, manslaughter of a 17-year-old girl in Ontario as a result of a fentanyl overdose death. Uh, and uh, just listen to the story. It might make you a little queasy, but it is what it is. So let's pay attention and uh, see if we can save some lives here. Um, what I'd like to uh, uh, what I'd like to, to talk about is uh, uh, an Ontario man has been found guilty of manslaughter for providing a 17-year-old girl with the fentanyl that caused her overdose death. At the trial, the court heard how Simcoe, Ontario teen, her name was Rachel Cook, exchanged text messages and met up with this guy. I'm not going to use his name, doesn't get that on air. In the days before, she was found unconscious and unresponsive on her bed by a family member back in August of 21. Uh, according to a ruling of Ontario Court Justice Aubrey Danielle Hillard, uh, it released earlier this month, the cell phone extracts from her phone 
demonstrate a pattern of seeking out and purchasing small quantities of drugs in the days leading up to her death. And the judge found, actually, that explaining that the only reasonable interference is that she met with this bad guy to obtain the fentanyl that actually killed her. The text messages also revealed that he knew, this bad guy knew, that she intended to consume the fentanyl he provided her with and that he was also aware the drug could be deadly, as evidenced by the claim in his text messages that he sent her home with an overdose-reversing drug naloxone. So now, I mean, then the nice, nice drug dealer, right, sends home the, uh, sends home the, uh, uh, the fentanyl that's going to kill you with the, with the naloxone that's going to, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully, you know, help you, uh, uh, you know, help you overcome some kind of overdose, right? So, um, you know, the question is, do you think he should be guilty of murder or manslaughter at the very least? Let's go on to say, let's go on to, and, and talk some more about this story, right? So um, he says, I'm, she says to him, texts him, uh, Cook does, the, the young lady, the 17-year-old that died from the overdose, texts him um, uh, that I'm doing a toke now. In other words, she's taking a puff of her pipe. She's obviously smoking the fentanyl, smoking the, the, the opioid. Um, Please message me after two, thanks, was his response. Obviously, he knew. After she was found unresponsive by a family member, she was taken to the Norfolk General Hospital. There, her heart was restarted, but her brain activity never resumed. And that's part of the, the, the deadly part of these opioid overdoses, that even though you might come back to life, I've seen so many young people, so many families devastated by the brain damage that's done as a result of losing your oxygen for such a long period of time. So as much as you might come back from, you know, some form of uh, of recovery um, without your brain, you're basically on life support. Not much of a life for you, nor the family that has to, you know, support you or be by your side. Anyway, in recent years, police and prosecutors, um, she was found unresponsive, okay, and then her brain activity, she never resumed, taken off life support and eventually, you know, declared dead. In recent years, police and prosecutors across uh, have increasingly sought manslaughter convictions, for the people selling the drugs, driving Ontario's opioid crisis. So what do you think? You think someone should go to jail for selling a laced, a, a, a cut drug, a street cut drug that ends up killing somebody? Uh, any different than selling them a gun? Any different than, you know, any other deadly thing that you could provide somebody with that they may end up killing themselves with? So investigators told uh, the reporter that the complexity of such cases makes it difficult to prosecute drug dealers for overdose deaths. I I don't know why. If you can trace the the, the drug back to the dealer and the drug then causes someone to overdose and be be dead, because let's face it, the majority of the drug dealers that that are out there providing street drugs um, buy it already – cut or mixed, if you will, right, uh, with different types of things to make it stretch longer. So, for example, if you're selling somebody uh, cocaine, for example, uh, you might cut that cocaine with various things, you know, as simple as baby laxative. Some people are using fentanyl, carfentanyl, also kill you, um, just to stretch the, the expensive drug, the cocaine, out longer or out further so that one gram now becomes a gram and a half. Well, you do that times 28 grams, and it's a huge increase in profits, right? So that's what's behind this. So the complexity of these cases, the justice system increasingly recognizes that fentanyl and related opioids are likely to cause the death by trafficking. 
so death likely to cause death by that by trafficking this drug you're directly connected to the death right <clears throat> so that's according to excuse me according to york regional police uh constable laura nicole uh she also recommends that uh they that the the the, the, the she also notices that the drug the judge hillard found that the bad guy guilty of trafficking fentanyl and of criminal negligence causing death in providing cook with the fentanyl this bad guy his conduct constituted a marked and substantial departure from that of a reasonable person. So this guy knew straight up that this young girl was going to take the, I mean, she was 17. I mean, no disrespect to 17-year-olds, but come on. You're alive a minute. You know, where's your brain? You're not paying attention the best of times. It's, you know, that's the benefit of being a, a kid is you can be a little silly and a little bit different, and a little bit out there, um, and that's okay. But when you're making decisions that are ultimately going to kill you, not so okay. So relying on her to you know to kind of figure it out all by herself, I don't think is reasonable. A reasonable person, re- reasonable person would have foreseen the risk of providing the fentanyl, according to the judge. The criminal defense lawyer uh, Ishan uh, Gebray, who is not connected to the trial but has also re- uh, represented clients with similar uh, situations, says the decision on the judge is obviously animated by the scourge of opioids and the destruction they leave in the wake in our community wake in their in their wake excuse me in our communities so there may be a subset of financially motivated traffickers who take heed and refrain from partaking in the trafficking of opioids because they don't want to end up with such court decisions they don't want to end up going to jail for uh, manslaughter uh, the mass majority of people who are involved in the sale and use of these opioids will uh, be undeterred they're not going to give it they're not really going to care because they're probably not at the street level. So, you know, it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a a multi-level marketing pyramid. You know, there's the big dealer and then there's, you know, the guy in between the big dealer and the street. And it's the people on the street are ending up, you know, dealing drugs out to young people like this uh, young lady who uh, passed away from a drug overdose. And, you know, it's... I don't know. We're living in such a crazy world. You know, we're, we're, we should be working more diligently as a community to to um, de, uh, decriminalize these drugs, right? Giving them, uh, giving people a chance to seek the help they need without the paranoid reaction of the fact they may end up going to jail. There have been real stories, by the way, of people who um, go to try to get the help they need for their drug addiction and end up being uh, convicted of drug possession. Uh, are being charged with uh, drug possession, so they don't seek the help. But if we take the crime away, right, decriminalize the small amounts of this stuff for personal use, I think that's going to make a difference. Again, I'm not a political guy, but I'm just telling you, as a street worker who's been doing this for f- over four decades, let me tell you that anything we can do to change change the, the dynamic of people who think they're just getting high to make their pain go away for the most part, it's usually not people who are partying on the weekend, that are dying. It's usually people who are regular users, and then those that are that are that are just you know getting a little bit of dope for the weekend just to have a party. They're the ones that, uh, unbeknownst to them, um, are are likely to not even know that there's something like fentanyl in the drugs they're doing, and end up dying uh, by from smoking a joint or doing a line of cocaine or something else. Um, and it's, so it's it's a combination of newbies and experienced people who are dying because it's just no way to really tell unless you test everything. And I know I'm a big believer in testing. Nobody wants to buy into it, but we are where we are. Hopefully people won't die uh, if they're paying attention to this story and uh, seek some help maybe. Hey, maybe seek some help instead of doing that drug. We'd love to help you. 877-777-5808. You can reach me anytime. 
We'll come back from the big break here in a little bit. You're on the road to recovery. You're listening to me. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Hopefully you got up, stretched your legs, got something to eat, had a smoke if that's what you do. And if you don't, that's great too. Maybe you got yourself a cup of tea or something and sitting back and listening to us for the rest of the show. And if you're just tuning in, you're on the road to recovery here at 640 Toronto. My name is Yona Bud. I'm your host this evening with Bilal and, uh, and Glenn in the studio. And we're so happy that you could be here with us tonight. What do you think about air pollution? Do you think that it has any effect on the brain or is it just a lung thing? I want to thank everyone who texted us earlier, including my good friend Adam, for listening in um, and letting us know that he's uh, paying attention and wished us good luck on our new national show, which we're rolling out next Saturday night at 11 p.m. here on 640 Toronto. If you're in Toronto, that's where you pick it up and uh, join us for the new show called At Your Best with me. Yona Bud and uh, talking about a different kind of stuff, but hopefully something that will help change your life just a little bit. Um, in terms of life changing, people who breathe polluted air experience changes within the brain regions that control your emotions. So as a result, they're more likely to develop anxiety, depression than those who breathe cleaner air. So it's interesting because we just did a segment on rural, uh, the impact on the mental health in rural communities since covid um, and one would think there's clearer air in the rural communities than the suburban areas, but these are these are findings of a systemic review uh, that's recently published in the Journal of Neurotoxicology. The team reviewed more than 100 research articles, uh, animal and human studies, and they focused on the effects of outdoor pollution on the mental health and regions of the brain that regulate your emotions. So the three main brain regions we focused on during the test, they say, um, where the key areas that have the direct impact on the, uh, I think, the hippocampus, hippocampus um, amygdala, amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex are the three areas that impact the emotions that we're talking about. In their study, 73% of the studies reported higher mental health symptoms and behaviors in humans and animals, uh, rats in particular, that were exposed to higher than average levels of pollution. So if you're sucking in bad air and you're feeling funky in your head in terms of your emotions, you're a little anxious, you're a little depressed, a little off, could be what you're breathing, not necessarily what you're eating, drinking, or other things you could be doing, right? You add to that, you know, self-harm in terms of alcohol or drug uh, use or abuse, um, really sets you up for a mess, right? Some exposure that led to the negative effects occurred in air pollution ranges that are currently considered safe, Okay. So the studies were done in areas that the air air quality was considered safe, according to the Environmental Protection Agency standards. They discovered 95% of studies examining brain effects found significant physical and functional changes within the emotional regulation brain regions and those exposed to increased levels of air pollution. Do you think sucking in air, bad air, is going to affect your brain? The studies found that the exposure to elevated levels of air pollution was direct association with increased inflammation and changes to the regulation of the neurotransmitters in the brain. So so why does that matter? So research in the physical health effects associated with air pollution, such as asthma and respiratory issues, have been well documented for decades. 
but never we have only in the last 10 years or so have we begun to look at how the uh, the pollution affects our brain and actually studies have shown that smaller small air pollutants such as uh, ultra fine particles from vehicle exhaust so if you're walking the streets right or you're out bike riding a lot during a busy day and there's lots of cars out there and you're coming away from your bike ride feeling a little off because you're sucking a lot of exhaustion, exhaust coming out of the exhaust pipes of the vehicles that you're traveling behind, especially if you're driving around big, you know, big city areas with lots of, lots of cars, lots of pollution, right? That can affect the brain directly. And traveling through the nose into the brain or by causing inflammation and altered immune responses in the body that can cross into the brain. So researchers are increasingly documenting the association between air pollution and negative brain effects or mental health. So the research suggests that air pollution will only worsen, as we know, over climate, as climate change intensifies and carbon emissions remain pretty much unregulated, right? So more research into the health effects of air pollution um, exposed that, you know, the exposure, excuse me, goes beyond respiratory health, right? And in the realm of biological psychiatry, it's badly needed. We need to really understand this more. The neurological mechanisms through which air pollution increases risk for mental health symptoms are poorly understood. People don't, we, we just don't understand it um, in terms of science and the medicine. We're just, we're just not, we're just not getting it, right? We're just not understanding it the way we should. And it's, you know, we're just so, we're just all, I mean, holy smokes, folks. I mean, we're just struggling. So many levels of trying to get our mental health in check and the mental health of our children and our seniors in check. And now we're finding that being outside when there's a lot of air pollution and a heavy air pollution day, if you're living in parts of the, of the city or parts of the country or parts of the province where air pollution is dominant, right? Uh, there's a lot of it. The, the brain, the air quality may not be so great, right? Um, people's mental health are, are, are suffering. And we can see it in adolescence. We see it in, in we can see it in infancy and in, in toddlerhood, right? Um, that air pollution is you know taking your kid out for a walk in, in the stroller. I mean, I want to make everybody paranoid, but taking your kid out for a walk in the stroller without you know, I don't know, maybe uh, a net over the stroller to keep as much dust and crap out as you can, right? Um, but it's affecting our children big time, and we don't know that. You know, the hours that they play in the park next to uh, a factory in, let's say, downtown Toronto, you know, where there's communities not far from factories, especially down towards the, the, the waterfront where a lot of people want to live. I mean, who doesn't want to live by the water? But when you do that in Toronto, especially in downtown Toronto, you're going to be, you're going to be, uh, cozied up against some, some industrial stuff, right? Some pollution. And, uh, just simply taking your kid for a walk, if we're not careful and paying attention, could have a negative impact on the, on their mental health. They found that within the studies investigating air pollution effects on the brain, 10 were conducted in humans. Research on animals has extensively shown that air pollution can cause a host of changes with the animal brain, but the research on how pollution affects the human brain is still very limited. And what's most, what's more, most of the existing brain studies in humans really have focused on physical changes, such as differences in overall brain size. So more research is, more, more research is needed, uh, that relies on a technique called functional brain imaging. So, uh, FBI, which could enable researchers like, uh, like people doing the study <clears throat> to detect, excuse me, subtle or smaller changes that may occur before the physical changes. So before the brain actually gets bigger or changes shape or size, then we can detect earlier on 
the effects of the pollution, the effect of the bad air uh, on the on the body, on the brain, such as we might be able to get ahead of it. Now, I don't know what the what the what the the, uh, what the I guess the, the the diagnosis is or what the prognosis is in terms of uh, the type of um, uh, you know the type of therapy. Is there a type of therapy that can be provided to clear the brain, perhaps, right? Um, the team plans to use brain imaging methods to study how air pollution increases the risk of anxiety during adolescence, right? And um, they plan to use a variety of techniques, including personal air monitors that children can wear as they go about their daily uh, activities, allowing to more accurately assess their exposure. So some form of, of air quality monitor that you could put on your kid's stroller or uh, in their, you know, in the, uh, hanging off their gym bed, uh, hanging off their knapsack if they're old enough to be walking around with a knapsack, right? Um, so that you can actually start looking at the amount of uh, impact this poor air has on the kids in our lives. Uh, but it's something that we need to pay attention to. So when going for a walk, maybe, might want to be able to either get on a subway, get on a bus or something and, and head to... Uh, head to uh, part of the town where the air quality might be a little bit better. Uh, interestingly enough, um, there's an area called uh, the Brickworks, um, and uh, the, the Brickworks area in Toronto and Bayview um, has, uh, called Evergreen Brickworks actually, um, lots of area to walk around. The air quality is somehow, somehow a little different because of the ecological um, things that they have in place there to make sure that things are growing and the, 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 the air quality around the, the waterfalls, the, the, the water, not the waterfalls, but the water uh, areas, the ponds and stuff that they have is of a better quality. Um, so there are places to go in the city. You know, some of the, some of the paths within the park systems, uh, where you're further away from vehicles and, and cars and such and, and trucks and such, uh, that create the, the greatest amount of this type of pollution. So there's ways to go, um, for your daily, you know, your daily walk, uh, your run, your bike ride, um, probably in areas where the air quality is going to be a little bit better might impact you a little bit better in terms of how you feel after the walk, the run, or the exercise. Because we know some people get off their bike and feel a little funky after getting uh, running through, you know, driving through downtown Toronto along King Street during a busy, a busy morning. Um, tons of uh, exhaust pouring out everywhere, and I think that that uh, is something we can now pay attention to if we understand that it impacts our mental health in a really negative way. So another thing to pay attention to, right? Just one more thing we can just be on top of. When we come back from break, we're going to do some more work here. We've got a guest that's going to join us. We're going to look at the mental health crisis inside Canadian universities. Um, that's a mind blower. Uh, we've known about it for a while. Let's look at it in more depth. As soon as we come back, on to the road to recovery. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. You are on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. You're joining us here this evening on 640 Toronto. Um, we have, there's so many places to, so many situations that we should be looking at in terms of the impact of, uh, on, on everyone's mental health here. Um, since COVID, prior to COVID, we were still having huge issues and not really getting to it. But the, the least of which are, um, young people in colleges and universities. Um, and before I get to that, I just want to give a quick shout out to my good friend, Rebecca, who's having a bit of a difficult time tonight. So we're sending lots of love her way. 
So the hundred or so thousand people that are out there, please send some love to my friend Rebecca so that she has a better night. Uh, but from 2007 to 2017, emergency visits related to mental health concerns for Canadians aged 5 to 24 increased by 75%. Okay. So can we just hold there for a second? 75%. So that's according to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. 70% of mental health problems have their onset during childhood or adolescence. Young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness and or substance abuse disorders than any other age group. Uh, 34% of Ontario high school students indicate moderate to serious psychological distress, including symptoms of anxiety and depression. Young people are telling us quite directly that they're feeling really anxious and overwhelmed and that they're struggling with all their mood issues and they're looking for support and not so easy to find it. My guest this evening is Rachel Bloomberg. Bromberg, excuse me. She's the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network, and we're talking about this study. There's a growing atmosphere of distrust and fear amongst post-secondary students when it comes to reporting mental health issues or distress. Some are being confronted by police, handcuffed, then brought to emergency rooms due to existing policies. We, you know, we're working on changing those. You know that. The argument is being put forth that we need to be much more sensitive, inclusive towards the post-secondary student body when it comes to their mental health. There needs to be work done ASAP to rebuild and maintain an atmosphere that's safe, trusting, and won't feel comf- won't feel confrontational, especially after the pandemic, if we ever come out the other side of this thing. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us this evening. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, but my pleasure. Um, is this issue exclusive to major cities, or does it spread across a wide network of schools? I, I think the data shows that this is not just a Toronto problem or a big city problem. This is a problem in all universities and even beyond universities. It's a problem for young people or transitional aged young people um, in rural communities and suburban communities and in urban centers. And did you find that your, did your study find that certain demographics were hit harder than others? I mean, are we talking about kids that are coming from perhaps lower income families away, away at school? Or, I mean, are they, first of all, are these, are these young people that were, call them kids? I mean, I'm old enough to do that. I could probably still call you a kid and get away with it. Uh, but, uh, the, the, are we talking about, um, you know, are we talking about, um, uh, young people that are that are are they, are they away from home or does it does it matter are, are these just kids that are or young people that are that are um, that are signed up or admitted to to, to to universities or colleges I'm not sure that there is a big distinction between young people who are in universities and colleges versus young people who may have entered the workforce or who may be you know taking a year off and still living at home it it is a fact that a lot of mental health challenges do emerge around this time, regardless of whether, you know, you're in school or whether you're not in school. But I, what I was thinking, though, is if you were in school, Rebecca, and, and uh, or sorry, Rachel, if you were in school and, uh, I'm doing horribly with names tonight, if you were in school and you're on campus, it's a different, I, I think there's a different subset than if you're, you know, in school and going home at night to hang out with your parents. I'm not sure one is better than the other, quite frankly. Uh, but is there a differentiation in, in the in the kind of study that these people have been doing uh, to understand whether there's a difference of on-campus versus off-campus support? 
Well, I think that especially, you know, in the first year or two of university, if students are living away from home for the first time, there can be a greater sense of isolation, particularly if they're in a different city than their family, their previous friends and their support network. And often they're not familiar with the resources that exist within um, the city that they've relocated to. Um, so they're relying on the university or college to provide mental health services and support or to direct them to the appropriate resources. And what we've, what we've seen, sadly, is that a lot of universities and colleges are not equipped to do this effectively. So concern among post-secondary students across Canada have been fairly consistent. Lengthy wait times to see a counselor, uh, even in crisis situations. Inadequate student representation, decision-making related to mental health services, mandated le uh, leave policies, uh, which can force an academic leave on students who may potentially self-harm, mandatory sick notes for missed assignments or exams, which place an additional burden on students who are struggling and over overall inaccessible, uh, desperate, opaque, discriminatory, and inadequate campus supports. That's what I'm reading out of this, uh, out of this report. Would you agree with that? I would say that there is a stigma to post-secondary students reaching out for help. And I think that the mandated, mandated leave policies that some schools have adopted really contribute to that. Um, yeah. it, and the perception of these mandated leave policies, re regardless of what the policies actually say, the perception is that if students disclose suicidal ideation, suicidal behavior, in self-harm, um, that they could be forced to leave their school. And that makes people afraid to reach out for help. And then you also hear these stories about people who did reach out for help and had police called and were taken to hospitals in very traumatic ways. And those stories also contribute to people not reaching out for help. And then you think about the people who do reach out for help, but then find that there are long wait lists, there aren't available yeah. counselors, yeah. Um, or you know, the, the they're offered three or four or five sessions and then told, okay, you're done. You've exhausted the limit of sessions that you can get here, which, you know, for someone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts or actions, three to six sessions is usually not enough time for that person to actually work through what they're dealing with. Right. I mean, sometimes, you know, as you, I don't know if you've ever gone to therapy, but sometimes it can take, you know, years of sessions um, to get through your stuff. Right. Um, quickly, we never really got to know your organization a little bit, but Reach Out Response Network. Give me an idea of what, what you do in relation to the, the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Yeah, so we supported the City of Toronto in developing an alternative crisis response service that launched four different pilots earlier this year um, in four different parts of the city. And those pilots um, send out trained yep. civilian crisis workers to go respond to mental health crisis calls. And people can access that service um, via 911 or also via 211 um, if they or if someone that they, they care about is experiencing a mental health crisis and could use some additional support. I, I feel like I've had you on the air before because we've talked about um, providing, I don't know if you, this is the first time we've talked, but I, we've done a few shows on the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, implementation of the uh, crisis response teams with people that are skilled in dealing with people in mental health distress. So it's nice to know, um, so I'm familiar with the, with the outcome. I wasn't necessarily remembering the organization behind it. So thank you so much for that. Um, in October, the Mental Health Commission, this past October, the Mental Health Commission of Canada launched a post-secondary 
uh, student's standard of set a set of evidence-based voluntary guidelines formulated in, consul in consultation with 7,500 stakeholders. It's to develop some standard <clears throat> in terms of understanding um, how to look at uh, mental health and, and, you know, what's an issue. We had a, someone text in here, uh, Rachel, asking me, um, you know, we talked did a show a little, did a segment a little earlier about air quality and how it affects people's mental health. And the person who texted wanted to know how do we define mental health in terms of what specifically is a crisis for someone. Um, can I ask you that same question? I mean, the, the type of people like, you know, we're talking about, you know, young people who might be anxious about their exams and nervous about, you know, the social aspects of being, you know, in college, university. Um, but what really, in, in the work that you're doing and, and the stuff that you're, you're, you're on top of, what do you think constitutes a crisis for most of these people? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And in my experience working at crisis lines, we defined a crisis very simply as a set of circumstances that exceed a person's ability to cope with those circumstances. So if someone and it, so crisis is really self-defined. There isn't like a list of factors. It's really just what does a person feel is so intense that they are not able to use their usual coping strategies. Uh, I think that's an excellent, uh, an excellent answer. I mean, a crisis for somebody might be getting, you know, might be getting dressed to 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 go to a, a family function and and such that they can't breathe um, from the anxiety. And a crisis for others might be, you know, driving on on a highway late at night when that's something that gives them great anxiety. I mean, I have my own triggers and. I'm sure that uh, there's things that bug you too. Uh, when we come back, though, we're gonna we're gonna talk some more, if you don't mind, uh, Rachel, about some of this uh, stuff that um, is going on. And and you know, young people, as you know, are are just being hammered uh, by what's going on out there these days. And I think the 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 upset and and the and kind of the um, you know you talked about stigma. We seem to see hear about stigma in every community and every walk of life. Um, working really hard, obviously, to try to shows like this to try to get rid of some of that stigma. But when we come back, we're going to keep drilling down and talk a little bit more about some of the stuff that um, I know you touch and are interested in, and uh, see if we can help some people out here uh, who are listening. So as soon as we come back from break, we're going to continue to chat with Rachel Bromberg. She's the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network, and we're going to continue to talk about the mental health. Uh, crisis at Canadian universities and colleges. Uh, you're listening to Yona Bud here, Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining me. I'm here on the Road to Recovery here. This is Yona Buddy. If you're just tuning in at 640 Toronto, and my guest this evening is Rachel Bromberg. She's the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. For a lot of students, this is the first time they're living on their own or even coming to terms with their own mental health concerns. Uh, the university is a unique position to cushion that blow, according to the experts, but there's no explanation for how to interact with health and wellness. Once you get to the health center you're asked if it's an emergency but when you're standing in a lobby they say with a bunch of other students who are crying and really in a bad way you feel like you're kind of just taking up a spot so you say you know what it's not that much of an emergency and then they tell you to come back later and of course most don't come back and that's the problem we're facing uh rachel what do we you know where where we are here have you have you we know that the pandemic hit canadians really hard why do you think post-secondary students perhaps more, you know, maybe more devastatingly so than others? 
I think because of, first of all, greater social isolation for a lot of post-secondary students. But second, I think because a lot of those students had expectations that, you know, they're going to start school, they're going to have classes in person, they're going to make friends, they're going to integrate into a new community. Um, and that just hasn't happened for a lot of post-secondary students. For some post-secondary students, for example, doing master's programs, like I have colleagues who their entire um two-year master's program was online and they didn't feel like they really got um, the social aspects or the networking aspects of their degree because everything was done online and people felt quite isolated. And and they're right, right? I mean, right, right. Don't you, I mean, you'd have to agree that if you miss that socialization, the networking piece, um, for sure you got to come away thinking you've you, you, there's something lacking, right? Yeah, and the pandemic also put additional stresses on a lot of post-secondary students who were maybe acting as caregivers to younger siblings or to their parents mm -hmm. or to their grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, it interrupted the pe people working to be able to pay for their post-secondary studies, um, yeah. as well as just creating a lot of stress and anxiety for people um, about, you know, am I going to get sick? Is my loved one going to get sick? What are we going to do if we do get sick? All of that. Um, have you found that the institutions um, have made an attempt to increase outreach and support for students or is there is it like a lot of conversation with, without a lot of solution? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that the in general universities have recognized that this is a problem and have taken some steps to ameliorate the problem. Um, in terms of like adding, you know, mindfulness classes and stuff like mm -hmm. that, yoga mm -hmm. classes that are available mm -hmm. for students, that kind of thing, um, and advertising more prominently services like um, Good to Talk or My SSP that post-secondary students can access. Um, at the same time, there is just a lack of resourcing for students. So students are often told, you know, reach out, talk about it if you need help, here are the resources available, here are some mindfulness classes you can take. Um, but when students actually are in crisis or in need of a higher level of care, that level of care is just not available for them. It's almost like you get the Band-Aid, but you can't come back for the sutures because there's no one to do the suturing, right? Um, you think that this is exclusive to students or you think there's a faculty issue and a staff issue as well um, that are sharing the same negative stigma and also dealing with the inability to access information? I mean, we did a we did a little a show a few segments back on this earlier today and this evening in the show, and we were talking about rural communities and the impact of mental health, negative mental health uh, during, during and after uh, post and pre-COVID and so on. Um, that in rural communities, you know, people are, you know, a little more likely to suck it up buttercup kind of approach and, you know, tough it out and maybe self-medicate. Um, and there's a you know, big stigma because you might run into your counselor at the local convenience store or at the coffee shop, or it could be, you know, could also be your, your kid's hockey coach. Um, the same too for campus life, one would think. Um, you know, being seen going in and out of the, the health centers, being, you know, being known for someone who's, you know, you run into somebody who knows that you're there for some mental health support. Um, it's really not that confidential uh, in terms of how it's structured. You think perhaps if they made that a little more undercover brother, it would help? Yeah, and I mean, there are resources available to staff. So university staff will typically have access to an employee assistance program, but a lot of staff are not aware of that program or that it's available. And again, um, a lot of what an EAP offers, some of what an EAP offers is single session 
um, very solution-based focused counseling and not necessarily the long-term more in-depth support that people need. So that's always a challenge in terms of resourcing as well as, you know, people might not know that that service exists as well, or might not understand that that service is confidential. So is this, is this, is this, and that's just the result of better education, I guess, better, better PR, better information, better whatever, right? Um, you, You think this is a stigma that we can educate ourselves through, Rachel, or is this just such an archaic policy that, we're just not catching up with the times. We just seem to be way behind in terms of people understanding that it's okay. I mean, everyone you talk to today, everyone that I talk to, whether they know what I do for a living or not in therapy mode or not, I mean, everyone's just in a bit of a funk and a bit of a, having a bit of a hard time, you know, sleeping, not eating as well, not finding time for self-care, uh, a little more concerned, a little more anxious. Maybe they may not know how to use those words, but it's kind of what they're describing. I mean, everyone's talking about it. It's just a little mind-boggling that there's still a stigma around getting help for it. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that there's a difference between people being comfortable talking about feeling bad, feeling down, feeling you know tired of the pandemic, feeling anxious around the pandemic. I I do agree with you that those things you know most people are comfortable talking about and hearing about, but I think that that's very different than you know, people talking openly about suicide or self-harm. I still think that there is a very substantial stigma around those topics. And often we tell people, reach out for help. If you're thinking about suicide, talk to someone, tell someone. But often people get scared when they hear the people in their lives start talking about suicide, start talking about self-harm, start talking about, you know, eating disorders, things that are a little bit more intense. Yeah, people don't really want to hear, you know, it's hard to hear the ugly stuff because then you start to feel, you know, I, my experience when you're when dealing with people that are trying to be supports, support, you know, uh, supports to individuals that are having difficult times, it's it's they feel that such such a load on their shoulder that if God forbid they said the wrong thing and someone took their own life that it would be on them forever. So it's kind of like not wanting to get too involved in the car accident because you don't want to get the blood on you, but you think it's a horrible situation. And, you know, um, it, it becomes an issue at U of T. Um, they, they, the students said they took some uh, steps using student-centered um, uh, activities. So they built a, st- a task force at U of T uh, on student mental health, they included consultations that involve listening sessions where students were encouraged to share their concerns. So the report that was most positive step towards um, seeing some solution at U of T, uh, the Brock University has uh, introduced a number of different measures over the past several years, including workshops that explain anxiety and strategies to manage it. More than 1,400 students so far in Brock have participated in that program. Um, so the question to you is, what are some immediate short-term solutions that can be explored to address this? And, you know, then we can maybe talk about long-term solutions. So short-term, you know, you being an advocate and doing the kind of work that you all do, um, what, do we, what do you see? If you could push the magic button or wave the magic wand, what would that look like? Well, honestly, the short-term solution and the long-term solution are the same, which is we need more money for long-term services for people. Instead of trying to get as many people in and out as possible, we need to provide adequate funding to be able to provide people with enough support or with 
the amount of support that they need, not mm-hmm. the amount of support yeah. that we think they should need, but the amount yeah. of support that they actually need, which for a lot of people is going to be many sessions, maybe months of sessions, maybe years of sessions, maybe more intensive therapy like dialectical behavioral therapy, which most places within Toronto and, and in Ontario more generally have months or even years long wait lists to access these services. And if you try to seek these services out privately, they're two or $300 per session. People can't afford that. So putting more money into the kinds of services that are evidence-based and that we know reduce suicidality, self-harm, and also help people um, feel better about themselves and improve their mental health, we need more money and more resources for that. Talking to Rachel Bromberg, she's the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. Uh, Rachel, give me an idea of uh, your to-do list in terms of uh, you know what you and your organization are trying to accomplish. Let's say in the next uh, year or so, like what 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 are you focused on in terms of trying to turn this uh, frown upside down, as they would say. So right now, so my organization has supported the city of Toronto in developing um, an alternative crisis response program that has launched four pilots. And we're now turning our attention to other cities, many of whom are in Ontario, but also some American cities um, to support them in developing similar services. So right now I'm working with the regional municipality of Durham to help them develop an alternative crisis response service that we're hoping will launch at some point next year. Now, when you send a, a team to a college campus for someone who is feeling suicidal or just not in their in, in their in a good way at the moment, um, that would be the ideal place to send send plain closed individuals, including crisis workers. Is there any specific um, attention being uh, put towards uh, one of these units or several of these units that you are are advocating for and doing such a wonderful job of of helping implement. Um, Is that something that you look at that might be more kid focused? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And there are some American models we're looking at, including a crisis team that launched at Oregon State University that are specifically crisis teams that are set up to serve students, non-police crisis teams that can go out and support students on campus. I'm talking to Rachel Bromberg, co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. We're talking about uh, how to deal with kids uh, in college and university that are having a difficult time with their mental health, a lot of stigma around getting the help they need. The help they need isn't there, and if it is there, it doesn't last long enough. Rachel, it's always a pleasure to um, hear from people that are trying to make a difference, and uh, kudos to you and your organization. We wish you the best of luck. Uh, as we continue on to understand the mental health as it relates to young people, we've got to really take a look at not just the campus um, environment, but the home environment too, um, and and what people are coming home to or reaching out to in their home. Perhaps they don't have the most understanding of of, of parents. You know, maybe their their parents just don't. You know, your your dad just doesn't get it when you say I'm just not feeling myself. Um, you know, it's hard to explain to somebody what yourself feels like if you're not someone who is tuned into their own mental health. So um, it's not just a campus thing. I think this is a community and family thing. I think we need to do a better job of allowing our kids to come to us and talk to us without the fear of repercussion or being taken to hospital against their will or any of that kind of really negative stuff that turns people off of getting the kind of help that they so desperately need. When we come back, we're going to finish off with another segment here. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yonah Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. 
Come on. Oh, you definitely don't want to hear me sing. And this is Jonah Bud here. You're on the road to recovery. And this is the last time I'm going to be uh, signing off like that this evening. So if you didn't hear me in the beginning, you're hearing me now. So if you just tuned in, listen up, folks. You're such a great audience that you propelled me across the country. Absolutely. If it wasn't for the listenership and the audience, probably I would be doing the midnight to 2 a.m. run as opposed to the 11 to 1 a.m. run. No, meaning that because you guys and all of you out there that were so supportive of our show felt that we could uh, continue to do a good job, the uh, people that uh, make decisions here at Chorus decided that Yona's t- ready for a national show. So next week from 11 p.m. till 1 a.m., please join me. Yeah, you got to lie, get some sleep in, you got to get some naps in during the day so that you can stay up late at night. And at 1 o'clock in the morning when I'm walking around wired trying to figure out what to do, you can be there too. And we can watch the same reruns of Frasier in the middle of the night if that's something you're into or anything else that's on TV at the time to just kind of bring yourself down. So how did this come about? We started the show Road to Recovery to try to help people dealing with mental health and addiction. And, you know, during the last number of years, I really morphed my own personal time and practice and the efforts I put into my my days in terms of helping patients and such. I started to do a lot more coaching, a lot more uh, uh, keynote speaking. So if you, you want me to come out and speak to your organization, let me know. We'd be glad to do that. Come out and visit y'all. Uh, but, um, we we got to a point where we're now looking at doing a show. The show will start uh, next week, and it's called At Your Best with Yona Bud. That's me. And it's really talking about how to be just a little bit better, you know, for you, having a better day for you and being at your best or days maybe where you're not at your best, you know, and dealing with life and dealing with life's challenges, trying to understand how you can get the most out of every day, get the best out of your relationships, get the most best out of you. Not necessarily making a ton of money, not necessarily buying a big boat in a fancy cottage. If that's something you want, we'll drive you there too. Whatever championship means for you, whatever winning means for you, whatever it means for you to feel like you're successful, that's what that show's all about. It's you at your best, trying to help you get to your best. And we're going to do that by profiling and talking about people who are at their best. And we're also going to talk about some folks that may not be at their best and look at the differences and such in between. We're also going to leave you all with some skills and strategies every week. You're going to learn a little bit something about how to be a champion, how to be better, how to be just more comfortable in your own skin such that you feel like you're accomplishing something and you're going to achieve new things and great heights and get to where you want to get. Maybe it's one more lap on the track. Maybe it's just, you know, a couple more hours, uh, you know, um, taking time for your self-care. Maybe it's, you know, stretching yourself and taking a course that you don't think you're ready to take, but give you some skills and strategies on how to jump in and try new things. Because guess what, my friends? doesn't matter if you're three or 93. Trying new things is the way that we learn. That's how we learn. We try new things. And if we don't do really well the first time, guess what? It's designed for us to try them again and again until we get them right. Or you can also make that decision that, yeah, This isn't for me. This isn't something that interests me. I don't really want to put the effort into this. It doesn't seem to be my thing, my jam, as they say. But I think once you've understood what your jam is, what interests you, what it is you want to do when you grow up, even if you're 65 and trying to figure out what life looks like next, we all need to learn those skills and strategies, a little encouragement on how to be a champion, how to be your best, how to be something I call a guy out. 
Everybody wants to be a goat, greatest of all time. I'd rather you be a goat. What's a goat? you say? Well, it definitely doesn't have four legs. A goat is the greatest you of all time. Because if everybody's in the room together, there's got to be one greatest of all time. What happens to the other 24 of the 25 people who may not be the greatest that day? But maybe it's the, they're the greatest you, the greatest themselves that day. And that's really what this show is about. It's about you being the greatest you of all time today. Don't have to worry so much about tomorrow. We can talk about it for sure, but it's how you're doing the best you can do today. And that's what we're focused on. That's what we're going to be talking about. Hopefully you're going to join us and all the guests that we're going to have on across the country from different provinces. We're going to profile different people and different stories from different parts of Canada so that we bring everybody together as one big happy family. Very exciting for me. Little, still getting used to that 11 to 1 a.m. slot, but I'll get to it. I'll figure it out. I'll be, I'll be sleep ready by that time. I'll have it worked out. I'll have my meals all worked out so I know what times of day to eat and such that I don't find my tummy growling at 10.30 and saying to myself, mm, it's kind of late to be eating, which it is. So I have to get my own schedule organized. Maybe I eat a little bit later in the evening, but, you know, eat the kind of food that digests better. I don't know. I'm going to be getting ready for it. Because it's exciting. I can hardly wait to talk to people all across this country. I can hardly wait to bring you together with your brothers and sisters and your friends from different parts of the country, hearing what they have to say about the things that we're talking about that day. But don't mistake yourselves, my friend. Don't make a mistake by thinking that I'm going anywhere because I'm still here with you right in the city of Toronto, right with my brothers and my sisters and my dear friends and all those that have been a part of this show for the time we've been on here together. You're not going anywhere. We're just starting a little later. We're not meeting at 9. We're meeting at 11. Same thing. We're going to be together, I promise. It's going to be me. I'm going to be here. And I'm really excited to have you on the other end of the phone, calling in, texting in, listening in, sharing ideas, telling me how you can be your best, telling me how you deal with days when maybe you're not your best, and figure out ways that we can help others that are also looking for support and solutions on days when, you know what? There's just some days where you just don't feel like you're right on, you know? I'm just not at my best. I have them all the time. And I usually try to take some self-care time to balance that, or sometimes I cancel appointments because I don't think I can give my patients or my clients the, the best of the best. And I try to do that every day, is give people the best of me that I can. But you know, some days you're just a little off, and that's okay too. So I hope you're going to join me. I'm counting on it. I told the producers you would. We're counting on all of you, my Toronto guests and my Toronto audience, my friends, my family, the people I love out there, counting on you to be there with me next week at 11 p.m. as we kick off At Your Best with Yona Bud. You'll hear it here in Toronto on 640 Toronto and across the country on the Global Radio Network. Thank you so much for being here with me tonight. I love you, like I said. I know you're tired of hearing it, but I do. You're the best audience ever. Be nice to each other. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything else. Don't say anything at all. As my mom would say, if you don't, if you got to go out there, spread nice. It's just easy. It's just as easy to spread nice as it is to say something negative. Have a great weekend. Enjoy your week. We'll see you next Saturday night at 11 p.m. on At Your Best with Yona Bud. Signing off for the Road to Recovery for the last time. We're at the end of our road. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. <laughs>